I'll be reading from the book of John, chapter 18, 1-11, and 12-14. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. I'll read from John chapter 18, 19 to 24, 28 to 32. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him, still bound, to Caiaphas, the high priest. Verse 28. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now, it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words of Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. If you'll join me in a responsive reading from John 19, which you can find in your folder or on the screen, you will all read uh, the words in bold. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. 
The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. The chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Isaiah 53 is the heart of Christianity. It's when we understand this passage, that religion lived by obligation is transformed into a living relationship with God. When we understand this passage and begin to see the Old Testament through its eyes, we begin to have the entire meaning of the Old Testament unfold before us. From the sin of Adam and Eve to the calling of Abraham to the deliverance from Egypt, the animal sacrifices to the crowning of a king to the prophetic promises of a kingdom in the future. And it's the, old, the New Testament writers who could look at the cross and understand its meaning through this passage. Matthew, Luke, John, Paul, Peter all quoted this passage. It is the heart of our faith. Our Father, what I am about to say is merely words coming out of a mouth unless your spirit makes these real to us today. 
If there is a seeker here among us, Lord, speak loudly the truth. Proclaim it through your spirit to their hearts. For those of us who, who have accepted Christ, bring this to us new and fresh. Let it permeate our beings. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. I want to ask three questions of this passage. First, what does it mean? Second, is it true? Third, what did it mean to Jesus? In Acts chapter 8, an Ethiopian eunuch, a seeker of God, he is so passionate to find God that he traveled all the way to Jerusalem to worship God, even though he was viewed as a second-class citizen, unworthy to worship. And so as he traveled back home, still with a raging desire to know his God, God looked at his heart, and he led the Ethiopian eunuch to open Isaiah 53. And at the same time, he brought Philip into the eunuch's life. And as he's reading, most likely aloud from the chariot, Philip is hearing what he's reading, and he asked the Ethiopian eunuch, do you understand what you're reading? And the man replied, how can I understand it unless someone tells me what it means? And when he finally discovered the meaning, he was immediately transformed, looking to be baptized into the community of Jesus Christ. It is only through the understanding of these words, the truth of these words, whether they come from Isaiah 53 or Psalm or the New Testament, it is only through the understanding of these words that anyone can come to true faith in Jesus Christ. And so what to do? What does this passage mean? Well, as we see in the first verse, there is a group who say, who has believed our message? And this group is most likely believing Jews in the future. After this deliverer, this Savior has come, and they come to a faith of, point of faith, then they look and they see what it has meant and they say, this is so unbelievable. This is so countercultural. This is so counter to religion that we don't know who is going to believe it. Because it goes against everything in our being when we think of a deliverer who comes to save his people. Imagine what kind of deliverer would we cast for this role? When we look for the savior of the world or worlds, we're going to look for Luke Skywalker. And so we are going to cast a dashing, blonde, blue-eyed young man to save the world. Or if we're looking for the one who can fulfill the mission impossible, we're certainly going to look for someone that looks like who? Tom Cruise. Yeah. 
And if we're going to picture a Christ figure in the return of the king, we're going to cast the charismatic Viggo Mortensen. See, that's what we picture as a savior. And when he comes, the response is going to be the celebration that we see at the end of Star Wars 4 or at the return of the king. But as we read this passage, we are shocked by the description of the Savior. For it says, He grew up before God like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty, your majesty, to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And so we have this picture not of this strong oak tree that comes onto the scene that we could all depend upon, but as a little shoot coming out of the side. Something completely overlooked, yet it is alive in the middle of a dry, parched land. Completely overlooked. And then as to his appearance, there is absolutely nothing that help, makes him stand out, that makes us want to cast him in this role. For there is nothing in his appearance that we would desire. And the reception that he got? What kind of reception do you give royalty? I'm just thinking of the wedding of Prince William and Kate Middleton. What happened? The whole world turned upside down as, as the world stopped. As the media portrayed days before the wedding. The full projection of the, the wedding to the world and then days afterwards. But that isn't the reception the king of kings, the savior of the world would get. For it says here in verse 3, he was despised, rejected by man. He was seen as a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. He was like a person that men would hide their faces from. Too embarrassed to look at, too embarrassed to acknowledge. And again, he was despised. Do you get the message? He was despised. And we did not value him at all. And so, these believers who are going to say, who's going to believe that this one so counter to all the values of our society could be the Savior. Who would believe our report? People wouldn't believe it because our value system values those who look good. Even the prophet Samuel, when he went to Jesse's house to anoint the king, he saw a big strapping hunk of a man come out and he says, that must be the king. We all look through those eyes. And certainly, certainly, he would be welcomed as a king and not despised and hated by the religious leaders who were pointing the religious way for the entire community. There's another reason people don't believe. It's because they don't believe they need a Savior. And this passage tells us that Jesus came as a Savior. That he took our sins, which separated us from God, 
and place them on this deliverer so that our sins would be removed so we could stand holy before God. It says that this, listen how many times it says that our sins were put on this Savior. Verse 4, surely he took our iniquities. He carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. So even as Jesus carried our sins, the crowd around looked at him and said, he's getting what he deserves. He's being crucified because he's a blasphemer, because he works miracles through demons, because he is upsetting the entire Jewish community. He is a false prophet. He deserves to die. But this scripture says, no, he wasn't paying for his own sins. He was paying for ours. Surely he took our iniquities. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. The end of verse 6. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In verse 8, he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. Verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. In verse 11, and he will bear their iniquities in the last verse of the entire chapter. And he bore the sins of many and made intercession for transgressors. We cannot miss the picture that Jesus, that this deliverer, who is Jesus, came to die to take our sins, our iniquities, to take our place. This is called substitutionary atonement. Jesus was our substitute. In the Civil War, 1864, Mosby's raiders uh, were causing havoc with the Union supply line. So General Sheridan pronounced any of any Mosby's raiders that was captured would be executed. And so they captured two men, one named Albert Willis, along with a, a comrade whose name is not mentioned. Now, it turns out that there was an exemption to this proclamation for anybody involved in ministry. And Albert Willis was a seminary student. And so they said, we will set you free. But his comrade was married and had a family. And so Albert said, let me take his place, execute me in his place. That day they hanged Albert Willis and let his friend go. That's what Jesus did for us. We deserved his punishment. We deserved everything that he got on the cross. But he took our punishment so that we could be set free. It says he did that 
so we could have peace. We could have shalom, and shalom means really to bring us back to the world, the life, the relationships we were meant to have. To give us peace with God, to give us peace with ourselves, to give us peace with others, to give us peace with the world, and to help the world come back into what it was meant to be. Jesus came to bring us peace. But who believes this today? So many don't believe it. Because we, we look at sin and we minimize it. We consider it some a trifling concern that should be no concern of God himself. Why would a loving God judge some of the mistakes I make? What we fail to realize is how horrific sin is. But we know it. We, we hear the news reports every evening. And what do we say to ourselves? As we hear about thefts and murders and injustice and terrorists and wars and ethnic cleansing, within us a rage begins to well. And we even sometimes cry, say to God, and blame him and say, if you're a loving God, how can you allow such suffering on this earth? You see, we ourselves hate the sin in others that causes such incredible damage. But we fail to realize that the same seed of sin that's in the heart of the people committing these atrocities is in our own hearts. And that we do damage to others. We do damage to our loved ones. We do damage to ourselves. We do damage to the image of God. We need a Savior because God does judge sin as a holy God. But His love is so great that He demonstrates His love toward us while we are yet sinners. While we are in this sin, He offers us peace by paying the penalty for our sin. What does this mean? This means Jesus Christ came to be your Savior. Now, is it true? Who's going to believe this report? And it seems sometimes we, we just believe what we want to believe. Like here, that's what, that's what they're saying. Who's going to believe this report? It doesn't fit people's thinking. That's the reason a lot of people reject Christianity today. It doesn't fit our thinking. But is it true? You see, some of us say, well, I don't think my sin is that bad. And I, I think my, the good things I do outweigh the bad things or, you know, my religion seems to cover, you know, going to church. That seems to cover the bad sin. So I think God's going to let me in. But is that true? Or some of us say, you know, I, I know I've sinned, I know I've done damage to people, but God's such a loving God, He'll just overlook the sin. So I'm in. But is it true? And there's others who say, well, well, there's every religion is a different way to God, but they're all ways to God. But is it true? Because Christianity says, no, we are unique. 
We say that we are, have all sinned. We fall short of God's glory. And God is just and holy. And there is a penalty for our sin. But Jesus and no one else, Jesus took our sins upon him. So that that barrier between us and God is removed if we place our faith in him. So Christianity is different and denies everything else that people are saying today. But we have to ask the question, is it true? And I think as we read this passage, our hearts should be confirmed that it is true. Because if you notice in this passage, the speakers speak in the past tense about something that happened in their future. They are brought to the other side to look back at something that's future to them then. Another way is we're talking, this is prophecy. This is foretelling something that is yet to come. One of the reasons I believe the Bible is true and Christianity is true because it dares to make prophecy, to speak prophecy, and that prophecy comes true. See, most other religions don't really speak the prophecies because if you write them down and they don't come true, it disqualifies that religion. But Christianity dares to give prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. And they come true, and they come true, and they come true. In fact, uh, liberal theological, theologically liberal scholars are so astonished by these prophecies, they say they, they can't be true. They, these prophecies must have been written after the event took place. That's how accurate they are. And so they date Daniel and some of the Psalms and Isaiah well after they were really written. But the problem is they can't date any of these books after Jesus lived. See, this speaks of a prophecy that is clearly written before Jesus ever lived. How true is it? You know, I was once talking with a a woman who is very, very skeptical of Christianity. And so I opened the Bible and I read a passage to her and I said, who is this passage speaking of? And she said, oh, that's that's speaking about Jesus. I said, you're right. I had read Psalm 22 and I shared... Those words were written a thousand years before Jesus was born and hundreds of years before crucifixion was ever a form of execution. And yet it perfectly described crucifixion on the cross. We could say the same for Isaiah. It is written 700 years before Jesus comes. And what do we read? Verse 2, he grew up like a tender shoot out of dry ground, dry, barren, spiritually barren Israel. That's when he came. There was no beauty or majesty. Nobody was attracted to him physically, to Jesus physically. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected my men. 
Jesus was so despised, so rejected, that they crucified him and then mocked him while he was on the cross. He was a man of sorrows, clearly Jesus was. He was like one from whom men hid their faces. Even the disciples fled and hid because they didn't want to be associated with Jesus. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Yeah, he was worth 30 pieces of silver. That's the value of Jesus. Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows. We considered him stricken by God, but he was pierced through for our transgressions and on a cross. When it was customary to break the criminal's legs so they could no longer breathe and die, they saw that Jesus had died, so to make certain they pierced him, just like this says. Like verse 6, we've gone astray. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you been, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because that's when our sin was placed on Jesus. He was like a lamb led to slaughter, silent. We read it this evening. Pilate kept wanting a response from Jesus, but he didn't defend himself. And right at the end, well, excuse me, he says in verse uh, 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And Jesus was crucified with two wicked men, with two criminals. And he would have been taken, and his body would have been taken right with theirs, and he was assigned to the same graveyard with the criminals. But Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, came and he took the body of Jesus and placed him in his own tomb. The detail that's spoken about Jesus 700 years before, you can't get around it. The very last verse of, Psalm, uh, of Isaiah 53, he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Remember when he said, Father, forgive them. You see, this passage tells us Jesus Christ came to be a Savior. And the fact that it's so prophetically, perfectly fulfilled says, yes, this is true. But I don't want to end there tonight. I want to ask that last question. What did it mean to Jesus? Shortly before Jesus was arrested... He read a portion of Isaiah 53. And he said this to his disciples. I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. You see, Jesus always knew that he was Isaiah 53. Jesus always lived under the shadow of the cross. After his baptism, John the Baptist points and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When Jesus was led out into 
the wilderness by the Spirit of God to be tempted, each one of those temptations was a temptation to Jesus to circumvent the cross. The first miracle of Jesus was a celebration, a wedding, and in that Jesus was trying to picture that what I am bringing, offering to you is a celebration, a life of joy. But note, his mother says to him, there's no more wine. And there's a very curious response of Jesus. He says, woman, what do I have to do with you? It is not yet my hour. And what he's literally saying is, his mother has said, there's no more wine. And he says, it's not my time to die. Why did he say that? Because wine has two meanings. It is the celebration. But for Jesus, it also meant the cup that he would have to drink and that we celebrated. And he said, this is the cup in my blood for the new covenant. Jesus continually lived under the shadow of the cross. When Peter made the proclamation, thou art the Christ, and Jesus unpacked for him what would happen, and Peter denies, no, you will not die. Jesus knew he was going to die. And then he goes to Gethsemane. You know what Gethsemane is all about? That's where the victory of Christ was won. Because in Gethsemane, Jesus understood absolutely everything that was about to happen. You see, a lot of times we're willing to volunteer for something, but we don't really know everything that's going to happen. And we kind of take it a step at a time and we accept it a step at a time, but here Jesus could see everything. He heard this. He knew about the beatings. Uh, Isaiah 52 said, he's going to be beaten so badly that he will be completely disfigured. You won't be able to recognize him. And that's just the beginning. And he will be crushed and pierced. And he will be judged by God himself and separated. Jesus knew this was happening in the garden. He was so wrenched, so torn, that he had to say, Father, if there's any other way, but your will be done. You see, Jesus' death is the only truly, completely voluntary death. We hear stories about the soldier jumping on a grenade to save his people, or the mother covering her daughter during the tornado. And those are sacrifices, but they're spur of the moment. Those people didn't live their entire lives knowing they would have to be crushed. And we might think about that. Would I give my life? And it's hypothetical. For the vast majority of us, it never happens. But for Jesus, he knew it. He lived under the shadow of the cross. That's what we celebrate in the Lord's table. Jesus knows this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Why did Jesus do that? There's a song that captures why. It goes like this. I was in his mind before the worlds were made. I was in his mind before earth's frame was laid. Because he knew me. Because he loved me. I was in his thoughts 
the night he prayed for me. I was in his thoughts before Gethsemane because he saw me because he loved me. I was in his heart when Calvary's hill he climbed. I was in his heart when he suffered for all mankind because he sought me because he loved me. Why did Jesus do this? Because he loves 